Well, when it comes to love, uh, one of the strongest loves, uh, I think, is the love of a mother for her child. Um, you know, when you, you hear about people coming across like a grizzly bear and it's like a mama with her cubs or something, even becomes a, a phrase that, you know, a mom's acting like a mama bear to protect her children. Is the mother's love or is a mother's love for her child always pure? Now, what that very strong love and noble love, is it, you know, actually always pure? Is it always uh, what God would call pleasing to him? For that matter, there's, there's other loves. There's so many of them we could talk about, but more that are, some that are more noble are considered noble, like the love of a country, which is patriotism. And uh, is that always right? Is it always pure or right? How about the love of the Bible? Is the love of the Bible always profitable? In uh, his book, The Great Divorce, I'm reading now, has been quite influential, um, is uh, this quote is from actually, well, we won't go into it, but I don't have to explain the the whole story to you, but it's, this is a situation where a mother does have a love for her son, but uh, does not, um, like, absorbs the son or uh, overwhelms the son with that love, that kind of overwhelming, controlling, possessive kind of love. And she says in the book that this mother love is the greatest of all loves. It's great. It's high. It's best. And the response to her is this, and this comes from a person in heaven. No natural feelings, no natural feelings are high or low, holy or unholy in themselves. They are all holy when God's hand is on the rain. They all go bad when they set up on their own and make themselves into false gods. And this is absolutely true. Um, natural feelings of mankind, are, are they high or low? That's the wrong question. Actually, the right question is, are they pointed at God or are they pointed away from God? Does the thing that you love, does it have God's hand on it or your own or something else? Imagine a man who loves the Bible because from it he's going to be a great teacher or say he is a great teacher. A man who loves the Bible and from it is a great teacher of the Bible and he loves being a great teacher. But if that is his only purpose, being a teacher of the Bible, in what has he missed? So we're going to start in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Let's start with prayer. Let's uh, be thankful and grateful as usual for God's word. Uh, Obviously, today we're going to talk about the love of God because Paul is going to exhibit that. And uh, how we, well, we'll just see it right from Paul. So uh, let's uh, pray for God's guidance and direction and also our humility and reverence before him. So with that, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word and thank you that through your word we receive revelation and knowledge. From your word we receive reproof and instruction. It is the great revelation of your redemption of mankind, your love of mankind, also your justice and discipline upon us. And we are grateful, Father, that through your word we learned wisdom, we learned to fear you, we also learn 
uh, to love you. Thank you, Father, that through that love, the things of this earth that can be so absorbing to us find their proper place. We ask, Father, that through your Spirit that they would do so and that your Word would speak to us today, each of us individually. And We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So if you ask a hundred Christians, what does it mean to love God? Um, yeah, I guess you could ask the definition, what is the love of God? And that would be just as, you know, it's a wide area. In other words, you'd get a lot of answers. And there'd be a lot of overlap. If there were people who knew the scriptures say, there'd be definitely be a lot of overlap. But I doubt that there'd be a lot of, uh, I doubt there'd be one uh, or two that were identical. Um, and certainly there's no one right answer to that. You know, what does it mean to love God? But every answer should have in it one aspect. And that is to love God is to love God above all other loves. Does God tell us not to love anything else besides him? He does not. But he also tells us that the, without the love for him, every other love becomes perverse. Like we talked about yesterday, it becomes vaporous. It becomes nothing. It becomes fleeting. To love God, all other loves, including the love of self, which I think is pretty obvious, but it must be stated, have to be laid down before his throne. Right? Think of God's authority, and God is love. Whatever you love, it's a person, it's a child even. It's the Bible, it's his word, it's anything that you lay that down at his altar. In other words, they all loves become what they are, as we'll see, uh, before God's love. So the theme today is that the law of love, which we're going to see Paul operate in, is actually the death of all other loves. And when you just, there's more to it than that. But if you just say that, then it would seem like, well, I can't love anything else. In other words, I love God, but I can't therefore... Right? Didn't Jesus say, if you love your mother or father more than me, you're not worthy of me? If you do not hate, right? in the New American Standard it says, hate, hate others, hate your mother, father, and so on, your family. And you know, so we look at that and say, well, does that mean that we're not to love them? And it doesn't mean that, just so you know, but... Um, what is also true, and it must be stated, it, it's harsh to hear, but you have to hear the whole story. That's why it's not harsh. If you, if you heard the story, like picture the disciples, of course, that are, Jesus says, I have to go to Jerusalem and die. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. They're going to treat me uh, insufferably, and then they're going to nail me to a cross and kill me. And the disciples are like, What? That, first off, sounds horrible. And secondly, we know, and you know, that you're the Messiah. Messiahs don't die. But what did they miss? No, they missed the resurrection. Right? Without the resurrection, it all ends right there. And after he died, even though he told them multiple times, in three days I will rise again, he said it multiple times. It was so, I guess, alien to them that, you know, when he did die, no one expected him to. Mary finds him at the tomb, shocked. 
the two men on the road to Emmaus, he's walking with them and he reveals himself to them, absolutely shocked. Nobody. Peter and John, when they run to the tomb, shocked. They get to the open tomb and they're like, what? They should have got to the open tomb and said, yeah, I know, he told us that. But no, shocked. When we say before the love of God, all other loves must die, and they must. Those loves, when they die, they are resurrected again. And when they resurrect, they actually become pure for the first time. Your love for your children, your love of pleasure even, your love of anything, And you say, well, what about my love of sinful things? You love those sinful things because they are a perversion of what it is that you are supposed to love. In other words, the lust of the flesh is often a seeking for pleasure. When When a person falls in love with like alcohol or drugs or sex or pornography or any of the other addictions in this world, that people fall into, they started that path because they were after pleasure. There's nothing wrong with pleasure. But you got duped, and I got duped into thinking pleasure was over here, and then we stopped actually worshiping pleasure, and we started worshiping the thing that we thought gave it to us. And you see, when that thing dies, then you know what gets resurrected? pleasure as God would have it and then you find pleasure for the first time actually it's born into you the same is true for a husband loving his wife vice versa a parent loving their children a person loving a skill uh, or a job or whatever they do even a hobby now Paul as we see in our passage lives in such a way that he can be followed, what he says. Of course, not geographically. What he means is he's imitated. He wants to be imitated, but not his mannerisms or his personality, of course. Paul does more than he has to. He does. He does more than he has to. And uh, he has allowed, because he has allowed, his own love of himself and of others to die before the altar of the love of God. Paul went through a process. He didn't just get saved on the road to Damascus and then start preaching to churches or building churches. He wasn't. took him a while to learn the truth. And from the truth that he learned, his love of all kinds of things had died before the altar of the love of God. Then his love of God's creation which is God's people, God's church, that's God's creation. It didn't belong to Paul, nor did those people, nor did the gospel, in fact. But he loved them so purely that they became his life. Paul has the authority as an apostle not to work as hard as he does. Notice what he says here. Look at verse 7, 2 Thessalonians 3, 7. For you yourselves know how how you ought to follow our example. Right? Meaning, and he's going to state it, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you. Now, as we know from this paragraph, there were those in Thessalonica who were doing no work at all. Paul says, look at our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone without paying for it. 
But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Notice there's four words here. There are four, uh, four parts of, first off, labor and hardship, and we kept working night and day. So labor and hardship, it's toil. It means labor and hardship, these words do mean to get exhausted. You know, it, it's, it's not like, yeah, we worked really hard until, you know, quitting time. This means the quitting time came and they kept going. And not just for the sake of saying, hey, God, look at us. We're, we're really good workers down here. But it was because it was necessary. They didn't say, hey, look, quitting time's at 3 o'clock. And, yeah, I see there's more work to do, but I'm out of here. You know, it's time for me to punch out. And why can't I punch out? Well, he says it. He says in verse 9, not because we do not have the right to this, but in order that but in order to but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example so he says at the beginning of this sentence and at the end of it it's our example that we want you to follow and we hear there's some lazy people up there but i mean even if there isn't paul's going to reveal this example i have the right he says as an apostle not to toil night and day it means that what? We would assume that it means that Paul, what is Paul's uh, mission or ministry as an apostle is to present the gospel and to build these churches, which is a lot of work. But Paul does even more. And it's not because he's required to, which he says here. We, as apostles, we don't have to do what we did, but we wanted to be an example for you. So this is the general who doesn't sit in headquarters away from all the fray. This is the general that goes to the front of the line. And that's how Paul is. Why? Because he wants them to be an example. Now, why would he do this? Now, he says the same thing in the first letter. Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Look at verse 5. First Thessalonians 2, 5, For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, for, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. You see, there it is again. We have the right to assert our authority, but we did not. But we proved to be gentle among you, as, nurse, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. And there it is, the love of a mother for a child. Even Paul uses it as an exceptional, noble love. It's natural for a mom to love her child so deeply. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. You see that? He goes the extra mile, as we're all commanded by the Lord, because you had become very dear to us. So what we have here is the law of love. And the law of love is the love of heaven. It's not from the earth. And it's the love of God in a person towards another person. So we'll say here that person over here is uh, one who loves God. And so there's this communication upward to God in love. And God's love has been 
shed abroad, which happens to all of us at salvation, but it has been learned and matured inside this person, and now this love is shown to that person. And that person may love God or not, but the question is, you know, will that love? So God's love, which is directed toward every person, but is revealed from the believer, me, from, from here, let's, I'm always making a mess here, so let's get rid of this. But God's love is channeled through believers to others. And certainly God does have a love directly towards either it's the unbeliever or whomever it is. I mean, we minister to believers also who, also who love God as well, maybe even more than us. We minister to them as well. But God uses this vehicle. And <clears throat> what happens is, is that when I love God, if my love for this person over here, I mean, it could be a child. If that love has not been handed over to the love of God, it's actually going to become a selfish thing and it's going to cut off that love. You won't, you won't know of it. You won't be looking at it. Earthly loves all at their foundation have a selfish aspect. A mother that loves a child so much that she smothers the child, why does she do that? It's because part of her love is really for herself. The same with a, a, a romantic love. It may be at the beginning quite pure, but over time, if all you want is for that person to love you, you get jealous, you get selfish, you get hypersensitive, and it runs into disaster the longer that it goes on. But when you have the love of God, all of that goes away. The love of God makes this love pure. And when this love, one towards one another, is the love of heaven, and then this love becomes real for the first time. This love becomes real only because it is the love of God. Without the love of God, this becomes a mess. Eventually it does. It becomes selfish. So this is the law of love. The love of God in a person towards another person. So we've got to look at that. Before we look further at Paul's sacrifice, we have to briefly revisit love. There is plenty of love in the world. Everyone has it. So there are basically 8 million, or roughly 8 billion, sorry, more than a million, 8 billion humans filled with love roaming around, bumping into each other, affecting one another, sometimes avoiding one another and having multiple, multiple, multiple interactions with one another. The love that the world has, that every human being has, always has an object, even if it is self. <clears throat> it can be a love of a chemical, alcohol or drugs. It can be love of sex. Um, these three number one addictions, alcohol is top. Alcohol, drugs, and then sex, generally in pornography, are the three baser kinds of love. And so first we want to establish that. Uh, when it comes to human love, there's baser or lesser, and then there's more noble. Uh, there's, as we move higher up the chain of love, there might be the love of art, the love of culture, the love of a skill. Perhaps higher still, the love of a brother or a sister in our family, the love of a country, the love of romance, love in marriage, love of a mother for her son, if I put that at the top. And I don't mean to complete a list here. I'm just showing you that there are gradients. And all of us instinctively know this. 
that the love for, say, alcohol is not at the same level as the love of a mother for her son. However, if the alcoholic and the mother both end up in hell, are we going to say, like Dante might say, that they're at different levels? Like the alcoholic's at a lower level, deeper in the pit than the mother? If they're in hell, does it matter? What is enlightening to us, and it must be said, is that all loves in this category must die. They all must. I do mean the love of mother for child as well. Don't get me wrong, though. Die doesn't mean lost forever. If it did, then there's no point to anything. (laughs) But dying so that there's a purpose in dying, just like there's a purpose in Christ dying, and just like there is a purpose in us dying. You know, as you know, you have died with Christ. Romans chapter 6. There's a purpose in that. We died with Christ. We were crucified with Christ. These loves must die and be buried. Why? So that they can rise again. And that they should have... Then, then they will be what they always should have been. For instance, a man who loves the Bible and loves teaching it may find himself coming to love his teaching of the Bible so much that he forgot that his Bible study was for discovering God. Do you know that your Bible study is for discovering God? Do you? You wouldn't sleep as much if you did. Um, To find, you know, you can, a love of the teaching for the Bible for a certain reason is to miss it. And I think a lot have done this. The whole purpose of the Bible is to discover the Son and with Him the Father. You have the ministry of God the Holy Spirit within you so that that could be made possible. Just as Jesus said, He will lead you into the truth. He will display to you or reveal to you me, is what He told His disciples in John 16. Imagine a man who began his early years looking into the Bible to find God, to find God, and then in his thrill and in discovering a gift that he had for teaching, that he teaches others about the God that he has discovered. But then over time, he becomes so enamored with his teaching that he stopped discovering God and began to think that the whole purpose of his life was to teach about God, but not actually to discover God. He stopped discovering God years ago, a long time ago. I've seen this happen. It's the ministry. It's the church. It's the, you know, how many people we're getting. What's our outreach? You know, all of that. If the pastor stops discovering God, this is why the pastor is going to change over time, by the way. But if it happens that the teaching is the purpose, then what has this man done? He has made the means the end. He's completely confused the means with the end. You're on a journey here, and there are signposts. That's what the Bible says. We'll see when we do our Bible study today on Psalm 19. One of the things that the law does for us is warn us. What if I fall in love with the warnings? You know, the warnings are signposts. If you start thinking that the signpost is the journey, then you've become completely confused. Now think of a mother's love for her child. She can love him or her so much that she smothers him. She might do everything for the child without thinking about what's best for the child. 
She does not love him more. She actually loves him less because her own love of herself is involved. Her love is a great amount of herself in it. She feeds her own desire at the expense and fulfillment of uh, at the expense of the fulfillment and happiness of the child. And if you think this through, this happens in everything that we love. Mankind. Everything that we love. Even the love of the drug and the high that it gave along it's probably if you're if you become addicted, it's a long time ago that you started and you loved the high that it gave you. And at one time, it was simply a love for pleasure. That's all it was. It was innocent in in a way. It's as natural to want pleasure as it is natural for a mother to love her child. If both the drug addict and the mother end up in hell, are we going to stand there and judge whose love was greater or lesser? It doesn't matter. So all loves on earth must die and be buried. That's not the end, though. They, but they have to. They have to die before the love of God. The preacher has to give up his love of preaching and be done with it. And he has to return to discovering God. And when he does, guess what happens to his preaching? It actually becomes pure for perhaps the first time in his life. That he's given up all that nonsense of that I've got to be a great preacher. And he has tapped into the real aspect of preaching, which is to discover God himself and then joyously relate that to others. The mother must give up her possession of her child. Possessive love is hurtful. It's always hurtful for the, to the one that is loved. It becomes worse over time. That child was never hers. She didn't make the child. God did. When she gives up possession, then what happens to her love for him? Then that love becomes pure. And for the first time, it becomes hers. You see that? It's not really hers. It never was. But because she said, you know what? I, this, my love for this child is their benefit, not mine. Sometimes the love for the child means leave them alone. Sometimes it means discipline them. In other words, I love God, and because I love God, I love you. And then I possess that love. But I never really possess it. It's God's love in me. But it is possessed by me. And so the love that dies, all loves must do this. The love that dies before God's love is resurrected to divine purity. And it means really the love of everything. This ties neatly with yesterday's message. All those loves that you had, if they weren't sacrificed to the love of God, they're all vapor. I mean, let's say I love nature. Say I'm a survivalist, you know. I, I go out there and I'm, I'm, I'm in tune with nature. I love the survival shows. And in the survival shows, many of the people who participate in them uh, love Mother Earth. You know, they worship this fake god, I guess a goddess. Now, is there anything wrong with the love of the things or the love of creation? We'll see that again. That's in Psalm 19, by the way. God has created it all. His glory is in it all. But if I love nature or anything, for the sake of nature itself, 
that nature becomes an idol, and it actually becomes selfish. I love nature so much that I run around, see, I see anybody just digging a hole in their backyard, and I yell at them for killing the grass. They don't want to want to cut down a few trees to get some sun in their backyard, and I spray paint their garage door with red or something. You're killing the trees. I become this militant. Not everybody does, <laughs> but it is the same. It's the same process of that. It becomes so possessive because it's mine. Now love God. And now your love for nature will see what? Well, look at that. Everything that you see is a creation of God. It is beautiful. Much of it is. When the addict gives up his love for the drug or the alcohol or the sex or whatever other things people are addicted to, there are many, there are a few, it must die from him or her. The addiction must die. And God says he will kill it. And he does. He's done it many times to many people. But can God kill the addiction without your permission? No. No. God will kill the God will kill the addiction if the addict lets him. But how? How does God do this? The pleasure that God promises on the other side, which is the other side of recovery, and yes, it will hurt to be cured, but it will not kill you to be cured. Addiction is no life, it is slavery. God's love, sorry, the addict's love of pleasure become the love of a thing that only gives temporary pleasure and then exacts a greater payment afterwards, far greater of a payment than anybody wants to pay. But they keep doing it anyway. And once the addict dies, or sorry, the addiction dies and is buried, what happens to the desire for pleasure? Is it gone? Is it ripped from him? Is there no more pleasure in this person's life? In fact, pleasure is resurrected and the person becomes like a child again. Right? Nobody's born into this world. I know in some cases they are, but for the most part, nobody's born into this world addicted to things. They develop it. And a child is awed by life. That's why Christ told us to be like one. Children have faith and they are awed by things. And so should we be. So now we can see why Christ said, if you love anything or anyone more than me, you're not worthy of me. If you don't pick up your cross and follow me, you're not worthy of me. If you try and save your life, you're going to lose it. Because the life down here on earth is a vapor. It is not something to be salvaged. It has to be given up to God. And then it is resurrected. So the vapors... When they die and are buried, will be remade solid. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15.50, he says, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. What's more solid than imperishable? Like we think imperishable, we think here, well, we're, you know, uh, like spirit world or something. It's not invisible. It's imperishable. Imperishable means the most solid, the most endurable. A great deception in the world is that the love of mankind is the greatest love. The love of mankind is not the greatest love. Without the love of God, the love of man will only turn into a diabolical demon. A diabolical demon and much more of a child of hell than, say, the love of lust. 
The love of lust is the baser lust. When the baser lusts fall, they don't become near as bad as the higher, the baser loves, I mean. When the baser loves fall, they don't become near as diabolical as the higher loves. When someone loves wealth more than anything, they become far more diabolical than a person who falls into some addiction, even though they're both addictions. John 15, 13, greater love is no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And this love is, you know, and in many cases, there's those who will lay down their life for their friends because of a, uh, a love of a um, uh, a love of a cause, so like in the military or in battle, and you know you you put yourself in front of a bullet for for your other fellow soldiers or something like that. That you know you're dying for a cause, and people have done that, dying for a good cause, dying for another good person. You know, some have been willing to do it, but in this case, what Jesus means is dying for all. He really means himself, and he's asking us to love as he loved, just as he started in this discourse in John 13. He's going to lay down his life for his enemies. Also with this, there's no guarantee of outcome. He's going to die for all. Are all going to believe in him? Are all going to be the recipients? Are all going to be able to be, are all going to be saved? The answer is not, no, they're not. And so this love is divine love when all loves must die to it. And then the love of those things will become pure and they will become your own. And if one has God's love, all other loves die in its presence. I mean, it has to be. That means to be thinking of, uh, you know, burning an ant. Sadly, I have done this as a kid. I don't do it anymore, just in case you're wondering. But... Um, you know, the, it's the power and glory of God's love. If you have God's love and you say, well, I, ha- I love you, God, but I love her as much as I love you, <laughs> you don't love him. That's a lie. You can't have God's love in you and have anything else remotely close to it. So does this mean the love of everything else goes away? No. It actually becomes real for the first time. It actually becomes yours. The love of pleasure the love of hobbies, the love of sports. You know, there's people out there who love sports more than they love God. They love their sports teams more than they love God. The love of people, the love of romance, the love of anything, art, culture. Not sin, but remember, sin is a perversion of that which is good. God will kill the perversion in you and give you the thing that you've been searching for. If, think about it. If you love Him, to love Him, all things must bow before Him, including you. And then you'll find a love that you have never imagined. You have to bow before Him. Not just part of you, all of you. And then you will find His love. I know it's it's a process. It's a process. We bow some things and then more things as time goes on. That should be stated. It is a process. It does take a while. But we, I think once you start that journey, once you've seen, the, you know, not just on paper, but really the love of God in your life, your love for him and his love for you 
which starts with his love for you. We should get that in the right order. We love because he first loved us, right? So you recognize his love. You love him in return. You lay down things to him and give, start giving parts of your life into his hands, and then you see. Then you want to do it more and more. All right, so uh, now we can see why Paul um, is doing this, laying down his life for others. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, he says in 2 Thessalonians 3, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Not because we didn't have the right to this, he says, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. Paul could have taken it easier. He could have said, look, I'm an apostle. I've got things to do that are, you know, not here in Thessalonica. I don't have to work night and day. Maybe I just work the day. I'm an apostle. I just do the day shift. I'm the chief of apostles, really. Although not that he saw himself as that. But why? Now, Paul could have just done his duty. But there was more to Paul than just doing duty. There was more to Paul. And that was the love of God. As 1 John 4, 8. I know I have 20 up there. Did I miss that? I guess I did. Uh, Let's see. Let's leave that. All right. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. The love of God and Paul caused him to sacrifice his time and his energy and his service to God's creation. Which is the highest of which, of course, Paul, what Paul's service was called to was to the church. But also to the unbeliever. He's a, he brings the gospel everywhere he goes. He did this, as he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, sorry, I think it's in chapter 12. In 1 Corinthians 12, he speaks of the hardship that he went through, but he kept going. Uh, in his first missionary journey, he had a terrible time. And then he goes on another missionary journey, which, which followed with another terrible time. So much resistance, so much pain in his life. And as we see here, he just keeps going. When he writes this letter, he is on his second missionary journey. And he's not going to have an easy time of it in Corinth where he's writing from. The Thessalonians certainly aren't having an easy time of it. And yet, they keep going. They're not like, you know, I've done enough. I'm going to put up my feet and rest. This work that Paul is talking about is the fact fact that he has it. The work ethic that he has is because he loves God. And and when you, this love of God means... People say, I love God, but they haven't laid down their loves for everything else before him. And therefore, it's, it's just words. It's lip service. But the, the love of God means that all other things die before it, then to be resurrected and used in his service. 
He not only wanted to speak about being a mature believer, as Paul sees here, he wanted to display it, as he says here. And he's an example of it. So 1 Corinthians 8.1. We'll just look at this quickly to see another example of this. In speaking to the Corinthians, which there's this huge issue or question about whether uh, meat, there were animals sacrificed in heathen temples, and that meat was not all eaten by the people in the temple, so it was sold in the marketplace. And so a Christian would, could be, either knowingly or unknowingly, he could buy some meat that was actually from an animal that was sacrificed to a, a pagan god. And the question was, you know, was that okay? Was that disrespectful to God? And, you know, the church came to the conclusion that it was not, that it was okay because those false gods aren't real. And so it was okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols. But not everybody considered that because others, for a while, some Christians could say that I'm perfectly aware that these false gods are not real. There were other Christians who were of a weaker caliber or newer who were still wondering if the other gods, maybe they were lesser. Not, not, I shouldn't say that, but they, they thought that there was some contamination to the meat because it was sacrificed in an evil way. So Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 8.1, Now concerning things sacrificed to idols... We know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. So we all have knowledge, and if that's all you have, without the love of God, then you will certainly become proud. So knowledge makes arrogant. It's not that knowledge is bad. Some people have thought to say here, well, you know, knowledge for the sake of knowledge is bad. No, it is not. It's knowledge without the love of God. Your knowledge of anything can be wonderful if you have the love of God. In other words, that knowledge of that thing, whatever it is, is bowed before God. Now, he takes priority over all things. And that maybe you have a knowledge of literature or art or a skill, how to use a gun, wonderful things. That to the service of God have their place. But knowledge makes arrogant, love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. And doesn't that sound like Paul? Oh, wait a minute, what did Paul just say there? It sounds confusing. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. You would think that the parallelism of the sentence should be, if anyone loves God, then he knows something. But it doesn't say that. Paul says, if you love God, then God knows you. And so what does that mean? It means that I love him. I do, do I know everything? Oh, heck no. I don't know a lot at all. None of us really do. But we love God. So we submit to Him and leave all the knowing to Him. Even I, all of me, the very hairs of my head are numbered, right? He knows me. That's all that matters. I don't have to even know myself. 
There's many things about me that I could never possibly understand. It's not up for me to know. What is for me is to submit to the Lord and therefore love Him. You see here, when other things have to die to God, submission goes alongside love for Him. If a person says, I love God, but is not obedient to God, you're lying to yourself. God, the one who you say you love has given you hundreds of commands to follow. If we're not obedient, we don't love him. If when we fail, we don't confess and seek the right road again, it's, again, it's a failure in love. We must love him. So he says in verse 4, Therefore concerning eating things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, first off, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. Now, notice this second paragraph here as it's put out in the Bible. Uh, verses 4, 5, and 6. First off, there are no idols. Even if there are so-called idols in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom, we, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. Now, the, the injection here of idols is important and because, you know, first off, this, the meat that's in question is sacrificed to idols, but uh, <clears throat> Paul then now leaves the meat question aside for a second and goes straight to the idols themselves and said, now look, all of these idols that are in the world, why do people worship them? Like, for instance, well, this ties in today with Psalm 19 uh, very well. Um, in Psalm 19, we see the glory of God in the sun going across the sky. And God, and God is saying, well, the writer of Psalms, David, is saying, God made that sun, and the sun marches out of its tent. The tent is the nighttime. And out it comes, and across the sky it goes like a brave warrior goes across the sky. And yet, the language in that psalm is very close to some paganism from the ancient world. And reason being, because they worship the sun. Now, especially in Egypt. Yeah, in Egypt, Ra, Amun-Ra is the sun god. He's the chief. Amun Ra is also the lawgiver. And so, of course, in Egypt, you know, you're just out in the sun all the time. It just bakes you everywhere you are. And they worship the sun. Why do people worship it? Why did people worship things, you know, gods like Dionysus or even Baal, who was fertility, oftentimes they're fertility gods. And it's because they thought they worship these gods. He's going to make my crops grow. And he's going to give me lots of children. Are those bad things? No. Growing crops is a good thing. You need that stuff. If you're in an agricultural economy, more kids the better. You know, in our economy, not so much anymore. 
but you know, then it's what you want. You want plenty of children. And you know, the gods that gave rain, gods that where Baal was a thunderstorm god, so you looked to him for rain. So why? So your crops would grow. So you'd win battles against the enemy. You had your own god that was a god of war. And why did you want to win a battle? There's nothing wrong with that. But you went to the wrong source. And then what happens here is, as Paul points out, there are no gods. There are no idols. It's all vapor. They don't exist. But there is one God, and he is all things, and all things exist through him. He's the creator of it all, to him and him alone. So now when I, his creature, say I'm going to love that thing, Nobody's running around loving Baal anymore. But people are loving the very same things that Baal promised to give. And what the idol is is different now. The idol might be Wall Street if you want money. Uh, or it may be, uh, I don't know what, it, anything. You could worship your career. But the person who wants successful crops is no different from the person who wants to be successful in a venture or a career by which they make enough money or, you know, not just enough money, but even to have a little extra to say, I don't know, go on vacation, maybe get a summer home, get a couple of cars and a boat. You know, what's wrong with that? There's nothing wrong with that. But then when it becomes that which you love, and you see the idol is the thing that you love, and it's a good thing, it could be family. Loving family is not much different than offering sacrifices and incense to the God of fertility. So I want, I want kids. I want my. I want. How about the God of love? Is there a God of love? She's usually a goddess. Of course there is. You know the Greeks had little Cupid. Well, he wasn't little. Uh, Cupid progressed into this naked baby flying around with his little bow and arrow. But in essence, this was a tricky little dude. In the in Greek uh, um, mythology, who went around, you know, creating some great havoc. <laughs> uh, he was um, more like a Loki in uh, in Norse mythology. But um, in any case, it's the same thing. This love of other things, which are love of things that are good, and God is saying to us, "Listen, I am love." I am the source of love. And all of those things that you love have to die to my love. And if, the more, the, if we don't do it, like for instance, 1 John 4.20, if someone says, I love God and hates, hates his brother, he's a liar. 1 John 5.1, whoever loves the father, loves the child born of him. Right? If I love God and say, oh, I, I, I hate my brother, you don't love God. If I love God, I must love the one who is born of God. And you see, my love isn't love for the one born of God. My love is the love of God. And then, my love of Him has died to the love of God. And then that love of Him resurrects. And it becomes 
truly pure. As we know, Israel fell in love with their sacrifices and rituals. They even fell in love with the letter of the law. And they lost their love of God. They lost the love of discovering God for who God was. When Jesus came on the scene and started violating their made-up laws on the Sabbath, they were incensed. They wanted to kill Him. They loved their ritual more than they loved their Messiah. Because they never... And this is what happens. If I, don't, if I have a love for something and I don't lay it down before God's love, that thing will become more and more of a demon in my life. It'll become demonic. When all loves die in the presence of the love of God, you do not lose them. You gain them for the first time. And this is how we learn to actually possess the things in our lives. And when I say possess, it means that you have them to, well, you don't possess them alone, right? You possess them because God has given them to you. Like if you have children, like I have a child, I have two children. If I love God, then they become my possession. But they're really, why are they my possession? Because they're God's gifts to me. If I start loving them for the sake of, what, possessing them on my own without God, then I become overbearing. It starts that more time goes on as I am like that. It becomes about me. I become possessive. And in fact, it is really my love of myself. All things that we, whether it's food, whether it's, you know, all of these things can be, make, put you in a prison. Any chemical, any food, any person, a hobby, I think just being distracted in your time. You see, Paul said in his passage that we toiled and labored night and day. When the time came that Paul was like, you know what, I'm pretty exhausted here. I think I'm going to quit. He said, no, we're not going to quit. We're going to keep serving because this time belongs to the Lord. Time is His, is it not? Time is a gift to you and me. It's not ours. We say, hey, you know what, you're cutting into my time here. And the whole world will agree with you. And say, yeah, man, that's your time. But when it's God's, when you put time in God's hands, my time, that's in God's hands. I don't love my time. I love Him. And then when He tells me, it's time to be interrupted now, Joe. But when it's in His will, also God will say, it's time for you to rest now. But that's not up to me. That's up to Him. I put whatever I love. could be time. I should have spent more time on that in this lesson, probably. But I, I could love time. In other words, I love my time. This is my time. I love that. Who doesn't? But if I love my time more than I love God, when God says it's time to interrupt your time, I'm going to say, nope. No, it's not. And then what do I do? I lose that time. I lose it. It's not mine. When I try and possess something like this and make it my own, I lose it. 
But when I lay it down at God's altar of love and I say, Father, out of love for you, I love you. I have learned to love you. There's a way in which I've learned to love him. It's through his word and through his spirit has taught me and you to lay things down. That now, once I have come to love you, it is time to put all things in your hands, including time. And to be your servant. And then you know what will happen. All the things in your life will become pure. Yours. Your possession, not as owning them, but as a gift from God. And you will use them well, the way God wants you to. But man, when we take possession of these things, we use them in all kinds of perverse manners. And they destroy us. Destroy our time, our life. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you that you have granted us the truth through the Scripture. Through the Scripture and through you, Father, are all things. And love for you, Father, are all things. May we seek from you satisfaction, fulfillment, and pleasure. And give all to you. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.